Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. All right. Welcome, everyone. I am delighted to welcome Fred Hugberg, who will, in a few minutes, introduce his, his book, Trade is Not a Four-Letter Word. He'll do his presentation. After Fred gives his introduction, we'll have a panel conversation here with uh, Greg Ipp of the Wall Street Journal, Damon Silvers of the AFL-CIO, and my colleague, Carlin Bowman. I strongly recommend you buy the book. Most books these days about public policy or about politics are either extremely pessimistic or extremely angry. This one's actually kind of upbeat and you know, happy, optimistic. It's, very, it's a very good change in tone. A lot of talk about tacos and avocados. So yeah, so buy it. It'll, you know, it's escapism without fully escaping. And it uh, you know, gives us a sense of a better uh, possible world out there. Anyway, with that, Fred Pogba is the former Chairman and President of the Export-Import Bank, 2009-2017, and I am very glad he's here. Fred, you want to uh, take it away? First of all, I never thought I'd hear the word, I'm very glad you're here, to the chairman, former chairman of the Export-Import Bank at the American Enterprise Institute. <laughs> that is almost an oxymoron to begin with. This is my first time ever being got a pass to get into this building, let alone speak here. So I'm, I'm, I'm quite, uh, I was excited by the opportunity. And uh, so I'm going to make a few comments about the book. I'll read you only one thing at the, in the epilogue of the book. Uh, question, true or false, free trade with foreign countries is good for America because it opens up new markets and we cannot avoid the fact that it is a global economy. True or false? Well, actually, two-thirds of Americans, both Republicans and Democrats, agree with you on that. So I chaired the Export-Import Bank for eight years. Uh, as Dan mentioned, longest serving. I think of myself as also the long-suffering chairman of the Export-Import Bank, since we had quite a number of ordeals, uh, particularly uh, a lapse of five months and four days. I did count them when we were not uh, authorized. And I'm actually pleased, though, this is not a talk about the Export-Import Bank. It now has a seven-year, quote-unquote, lease on life. The only, problem, the only challenge is when Congress does reauthorize an agency, the start time is when the, it last expired. So it's like when you get into a taxi and then you, then you hit a traffic jam and you sit there for 10 minutes and the meter keeps running and you haven't moved. So it's a little bit like that with an authorization as well. So trade is not a full-letter word. Arose out of my time at the Export-Import Bank and just looking and watching and hearing how the consensus on trade and export and engaging with the rest of the world kept declining over time. And so I took a look at that, and I traced it through uh, six products. And I'll talk a little bit about the products. And the six products are, I started with actually the Taco Bowl, which uh, President Trump made uh, famous, I would say, during his campaign in 2016. Of course, by the way, the Taco Bowl was not even invented in Mexico, has very little to do with Mexico. Taco Bowl was invented by a man named C. Elmer Doolin, not a very Mexican name, he was traveling in Texas, met a man from Mexico who had a fryer that fried essentially like Doritos or Fritos, and he bought the patent from uh, um, Gustavo Alguin, 
and brought it back to, of all places, Disneyland, where, of course, all foreign things are invented, and invented the taco bowl at Disneyland. By the way, taco bowls is not dissimilar to chop suey, also invented in America, corned beef and cabbage, also invented in America, and all the ingredients of a taco bowl actually are a story about trade. And number one, exhibit A would be the avocado. Anybody have guacamole over a Super Bowl weekend? 140 million pounds of avocados were smashed to smithereens on Super Bowl Sunday to provide avocados. We now import 85% of the avocados. They hardly were seen in this country before NAFTA. So NAFTA opened up the ability to import and trade in fruits and vegetables with Mexico. And so if you enjoyed an avocado or had avocados host today, part of that is because of trade. We consume more beef than we produce. Even the corn in a taco bowl or the corn we consume does not come from Iowa. I was out in Iowa. They were very disappointed to hear it's not their corn. Most of the corn we eat in this country either comes from the Netherlands, Turkey, or Romania. The corn we produce is used in fuel and animal feed. And we can enjoy a taco bowl in Washington, in Alaska, in Maine, in California, and we can do it 365 days a year. So I partly talk about food in that sense. And there's a section in the book, I don't want to ruin it for those who have not read the book yet, Norm, um, (laughs) that back in 75, a long time ago, the average supermarket had maybe 9,000 items. And uh, it's a picture in here when Boris Yeltsin visited America and... On his way, before he left the country, he went to Houston to Randall's supermarket and is just amazed at, first of all, his first reaction is, where are the lines? And he he commented, he said, well, I'm in Houston. This is a, quote-unquote, as he called it, a provincial market as opposed to in New York. And it already had 30,000 choices of hams, sausages, cheeses, fruits, vegetables. And today it's close to 50,000 in an average supermarket. And a lot of that, again, has to do with trade. So I also talk about the banana as an indication of trade. All of our bananas come from essentially five Central American countries. Greg Ipp is here from the Wall Street Journal. So the Wall Street Journal had an excerpt of the book. The iPhone is an example of trying to understand trade. The iPhone was, yes, designed here. The rare earth minerals that are in there come from Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. It's probably a little early in the day to have hit your 10,000 steps. Anybody keep track of those steps? That's because there's a chip from the Netherlands that actually helps your steps. And when you turn the phone, either landscape or portrait, and it perfectly adjusts, that gyroscope comes from Switzerland. And the display comes from Samsung, Apple's big competitor from Korea. And the glass, which regrettably frequently does crack, comes from Corning, New York. All of this is assembled in China. It's hard to get the exact number from Apple, but about the estimates are $8.46. I've heard $5, but essentially certainly less than $10 of the actual cost of the iPhone comes from China. And yet the entire iPhone is considered a Chinese import by the World Trade Organization, by our own government. So We import about $16 billion worth of iPhones. It contributes $16 billion to the trade deficit that President Trump uh, is so obsessed with. And yet, 
a very, very small portion of that iPhone actually comes from China. So I use that in the book to first illustrate, one, so we better understand what a supply chain is, and two, the folly, and I would say the, the hard-to-understand obsession of this administration with bilateral trade deficits, including on this trip to India this week, where there's a $30 billion trade deficit that we're crowing about will go to $20 billion, and I mean, that's a, not even a rounding number in our economy. So one of the things I try and do in the book is debunk a, mo- a number of myths, that being one of them, in terms of bilateral trade deficits. I also look at uh, automobiles. Anybody have an idea what the most American car... If you read the book, you can't answer the question. The most American car on the road? It's the Honda Odyssey. 75% of the Honda Odyssey is designed and made and manufactured in this country. And in fact, when the book came out a few weeks ago and there was a book event here in Washington, instead of sending 75 books, they sent 15 books. So the publisher panicked on how we're going to get 60 books to Washington on four or five hours' notice. And to the rescue was Uber, and coincidentally, they sent a Honda Odyssey to bring the books to Washington. <laughs> so it felt very apt to that how it came. So the Honda Odyssey is the most American car on the road. The top 10 or 11 are either Honda or Acuras. Then there's a Mercedes, and the most, quote-unquote, American mark, the Chevy Corvette clocks in at 13. Uh, And all that is to say, we need to understand what is an American product, what's an imported product, and the fact is, we rely on global supply chains in order to produce better cars. I don't know about you, I'm of an age, I remember we had a Buick Skylark. The color was champagne mist. I remember that. My friend said it certainly missed. You know, the color didn't match so well. It leaked in the rain. The windows squeaked. (laughs) Our cars are better. They last longer. They're better quality. They run over 100,000 miles. And I would say that global competition and global supply chains is one reason we have a robust automobile manufacturing facility and capability in this country today that left to our own devices, we might not. You know, before the Japanese started bringing cars into this country and manufacturing them here and assembling them here, it was 90%. It was essentially, it was almost a cartel of uh, Ford, GM, and Chrysler. The last two products I talk about are, one is higher education, completely overlooked as an export. Um, And as chairman of the Export Input Bank, we did overlook higher education as an export. We were not very good at service exports, but we have over one about 1.1 million foreign students studying in this country. They generate about $42 billion worth of uh, export revenue because we're exporting a service of an education, about 450,000 jobs. And one of the things that we don't hear in the trade debate is how we should be really bolstering service exports. And that's what I'd like to just sort of close with on that. And that is, and we also have one of the few countries in the world with actually a surplus of seats in colleges around this country. Uh, and in fact, when I was uh, in Greg's office, I was talking to Jerry Seib, uh, and I was, I was writing the book, and that's what inspired me to actually add that chapter, because he's a trustee, I think, at the University of Kansas, and was talking about how universities have been able to compensate for the lack of sort of state support that have happened to a lot of state units, but have not been able to make up the revenue loss from foreign students. And as uh, John Sexton uh, quoted in this book, said that um, foreign students are the narcotic of 
higher education. It's the addiction that higher ed requires and needs. And on top of that, the important thing is that the improvement in the classroom life by having foreign students and students from around the world benefits American students. And I also would say it has, we have trained many foreign leaders around the world have studied in the United States. And in fact, at one point, the, um, the prime minister of Greece and his largest opponent were actually roommates together at Amherst College. And lastly, I talk about Game of Thrones. But Game of Thrones is an example of where the future is going in terms of entertainment, in terms of, well, entertainment, I would say all services, consulting, legal, insurance. But if we think about entertainment, that, that program we have is now in 100, was in 170 countries, uh, generated uh, millions and millions of dollars of revenue to the United States. But the actors, the designers, a film crew come from all over the world. And you could not make that program without open borders and people being able to travel freely in order to produce those kinds of services. So what we need to be focusing on much more is where we excel, and that is in services, as I said, higher education, entertainment, financial services, legal, consulting. These are the things that are the future. These are the things that are a competitive advantage, and yet so much of the dialogue today is simply around cars, airplanes, power plants, you know, manufactured goods, and agriculture. We're one of the few advanced economies that actually runs a surplus in commodities as well. So to leave you, and before we have the discussion, I think what I wanted to highlight is, one, trade as any policy thing, we, any policy decision we make in this country, we'll have winners and losers. And we have done a bad job, and I... I think our elected officials have done a bad job of acknowledging they're going to be winners and losers. Because if we acknowledge truly they're going to be losers, then we need to do something about them. And to simply pretend that it's a win-win, that everybody benefits, well, on average, everybody benefits, but communities were hollowed out, people lost their jobs, people were not able to sort of reboot their economy, and, and People were not able to provide support for their families, and that was devastating. And we devastated a lot of communities by trade, and now, frankly, automation and artificial intelligence. And we need to really begin to much more seriously think about how we're going to remedy that, because if we don't remedy that, we're going to have a much bigger problem than we had with trade. So trade clearly has winners and losers. Trade deals, by the way, are not about jobs which is another thing I try and point out. So those are some of the takeaways. China, I talk about China in this book. China has clearly been a bad actor. President Trump is right on that score. They have been a bad actor. They have not sort of played by the rules. The WTO was not ideally set up to deal with a competitor of that size and scale. And we need to address that issue. And we're, we're reluctant to do that as well. And right now it appears we are embarking on an approach on trade that's much more unilateral. It's not as multilateral, I would say, since it's been since World War II. And it may be satisfying to the administration, but it is whether it really will have generate the kind of results that President Trump thinks it will generate remains to be seen. So with that, let me turn it back over to Stan. Carlin, so you, you mentioned that poll numbers look reasonably good on trade policy, and I asked Carlin to to talk about that a little bit and how Americans see international trade and how those views have evolved. 
Thanks, Absolutely. Dan. Um, and also, congratulations on the book. I think this is a terrific way to sell, to sell trade policy overall. In thinking about trade, I'd like to take you back to a question that was asked for the first time by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, one of the best polling outfits on foreign policy, in 1974. And the question's been asked 15 times since then. It's a question about the most important foreign policy goals for the United States. All sorts of issues are included in the long list from the Chicago Council. And what's interested in me in all of those questions in number one or two position has been protecting the jobs of American workers. And again, when you think about it, it's competing with issues like stopping the spread of nuclear weapons. And so to me, that just shows this is the context in which you have to think about trade. We're very fortunate this morning because Gallup released just three hours ago a new poll on its question that they've asked since the early 1990s on foreign trade showing the highest support for a free trading environment and the history of that Gallup poll, again, going back to the early 1990s. And not only that, but in the, in the poll this morning, uh, you saw solid majority support for the USMCA. And again, some very, very positive attitudes overall. And I think we need to think about how to interpret that data. It also has a rare bipartisan consensus with 79% supporting in the, um, seeing uh, foreign trade as an opportunity for economic growth and only 18% as a threat um, in terms of imports. Um, as I said, rare bipartisan convention with Democrats and Republicans, solid majorities seeing trade in the same way. Um, Republicans and Democrats switched positions, but long before Trump was elected. They switched positions in 2011 and 2012, and now Republicans are a little bit more skeptical about trade than are Democrats overall. Um, what was interesting about that question, and Gallup didn't refer to it in its release this morning, but in March 2019, for the first time, um, they found that Americans were saying that free trade benefits American workers. That usually lags behind all of the other indicators overall. Um, my own view, and again looking at the historical data on this high support for free trade right now, is that the good economy that Americans are experiencing now, the fact that they think they and their families are getting along pretty well, has boosted support for free, for free, trade, free trade generally. As I said, the public is supportive now of USMCA and also the phase one China deal, but I'm not sure that those, that Donald Trump deserves any credit for the numbers we're seeing in polls about those two things overall. Um, rather, what I think the public is saying is that government finally got something done. Um, Gallup's asked a question since 1935. It's an open-ended question. You can give them whatever answer you want. What's the biggest problem facing the country today? And for the last five years running, it's been government government not getting anything done. And so I think the support that we're seeing for those two things reflects the fact that government actually did something and they did something in a bipartisan way. Um, we haven't mentioned the coronavirus yet. I noticed also in the Gallup poll this morning that 69% were worried about the impact it could have on foreign trade. And I confess I don't know how to interpret that data at this point. Americans seem pretty confident of the elite agencies that take the lead in this particular area, but it could have an impact on some of these numbers that I've just discussed. And so I'll stop there, but congratulations again. Uh, thank you. Uh, so uh, Damon Carlin just said that Americans now believe that American workers, like, as I suppose qua workers especially, yeah. benefit from from international trade, and I think I will treat you as the voice of the American worker at the, okay. the labor movement. Obviously, the, the AFL-CIO, the labor movement in general, has had a more complicated relationship with international trade, but you, uh, you guys supported the USMCA. Can you talk a bit about what, to what extent you think international trade has benefited the U.S., American workers, where 
there have been issues that you have not approved of? <laughs> yeah, a couple. Uh, Fred's book is, uh, you know, an eloquent defense of, an, of just the, the, the sort of broad notion that trade is a positive force, that international trade is a positive force in modern life. I don't think that we in the American labor movement actually have an argument with that proposition at that level, right? But it, life is not actually lived at that level. And, the, um, and I think, you know, if, if you're fortunate enough to, to read through Fred's book and get to the accounts of things like, like the history of the banana industry uh, in South America, you will see that the, or that, that, these story, that the actual lived experience of trade uh, and the specific issues associated with it are, are, where, uh, <laughs> are where the problem comes up. Uh, because I think the best way to understand why this is true is, is through two points. One is, is that to the extent that, you, that, one, that countries enter into truly free trade, so to speak, fully integrated trading relationships, they've essentially integrated their economies and to a significant degree their societies. This is sort of the hidden, <laughs> sort of the hidden meaning of, of Fred's stories about, for example, the rising popularity of guacamole, right, is that, is that through our trading relationships, the United States has become a much more global society in a lot of different ways. That's actually a good thing. The problem comes in terms of what are the rules. Right? If you're economically integrating with a society that has a wage level that's a tenth of yours, Right? That raises really serious issues, particularly if one society is using public policy to suppress wages, another society is not. Or to take a more extreme example, which I think, which is our view, has been largely the case, for example, in Mexico during the time of NAFTA, if there are serious labor rights and human rights problems associated with those wage differentials then, and rule of law problems, then you really, then the question is what type of relationships is this? And, um, and that comes to the second point, which is very powerfully addressed in Fred's book in the banana chapter, which is that free trade is often a cover for some extremely coercive situations. Um, and uh, I, th I think a particularly funny example of this is, Fred, you talk a couple of times about the, the British view of trade uh, in the, uh, you know, uh, before, before the Second World War and Winston Churchill and so forth. You know, <laughs> it's... The British like to talk about their history as if they didn't have an empire, uh, but they did, right? And, and British trade policy was not free in any sense uh, if you were, for example, uh, a resident of the Indian subcontinent, right? You did not experience that as free in any, in any right. respect. Um, and in fact, I would say that a lot of the real roots of Brexit have to do with the long reckoning with this, uh, with this experience and the difficulties they're having with it. But my point is, you have this issue of economic integration and what are economic, social, and ultimately political integration, and what are the rules? And then B, you have this question of underneath this, what kind of coercion is going on? Uh, and f so for example, I don't think it's possible to tell the story of the assembly of the iPhone without talking about the kind of coercion that is involved in the Foxconn production process. Right? Now, I think, and I'll, and I'll wind up here because this can be going forever, but the USMCA is a really sort of almost unique uh, example of a serious effort on the part of an unlikely group of people. Nancy Pelosi, Bob Lighthizer, the leadership of the labor movement, particularly my boss, President, President Trumpka of the AFL-CIO, 
to seriously try to address, through a trade negotiation, the imbalance that exists between the U.S. and Mexican labor markets and the labor rights problems in Mexico. Now, I, actually, I was just talking about the U.S. side. It's very important to recognize we had real partners in Mexico on this. The Mexican president, the Mexican trade uh, rep, uh, the Mexican legislators who were involved in that process equally wanted to, to address this problem. And I'll tell you, the, 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 the first draft of the USMCA was one that we could not have supported. A very tough negotiating process ensued, and we made real progress, and we got to something that we thought was clearly, while not perfect, an improvement. That would never have happened if, the, if there wasn't this kind of sense among all of these parties that the, that, the, that the issue of labor rights and wage suppression in Mexico had to be addressed and addressed seriously. And so I think that should suggest a possible path forward. But I think if you think for a moment about the circumstances in China, you can see how challenging that path forward will be in our other major trading relationships. And I'll stop there, but obviously this is a... This is a subject we could go into in great, for sure. great uh, detail. Uh, Fred, do you want to talk about bananas for a little bit? Well, I was also going to... I, I mean, almost got you one in addition to the other. <laughs> well, I, the, I, went, I went to Mexico to re, on the research of the book, and I would say that there was too little too late, but widespread understanding that their suppression of wage rates for 20 years was their sort of simplistic and knee-jerk response, how we're going to remain competitive. And I would say there was acknowledgement in the government and in the private sector and in the sort of NGO sector that they had really bungled this thing in a major way. And I think I was asked, why did Mexico agree to USMCA? I think think that they felt in a very vulnerable position. They kind of knew they had not sort of lived up to what the expectation was. And they were just desperate to make sure that they, it did not go away. I talk about the banana and the very brutal experience of ultimately the Chiquita Banana Company and five countries that essentially supply our bananas. And bananas are the most consumed fruit in this 27 pounds per capita. That's a lot of bananas. And, but I even make a comment in there in, in, the, in the development of the banana trade how we brutalized... I mean, the United Fruit Company had a land area essentially the size of the state of Connecticut, which is a large tract of land that they essentially controlled. And the whole idea of a banana republic comes out of, from all of that. And, by the way, it's the, it's the playbook that the Chinese are try, have been trying to deploy in sub-Saharan Africa for the last 10, 20 years. It, it was wrong when we did it, quote-unquote, in the 19th century, and it's wrong when they were doing it in the 20th and 21st century, where they would, they're going to build a railroad in order to get access to minerals or liquefied natural gas, and they brutalize the population, they take advantage of it, they, take, they extract very high uh, royalty rates on all that stuff. So it is, mm-hmm. it is an area, as with Foxconn, that, and I do talk about at the end of the book, I think at the end of the day... It has to be consumers who call companies to challenge, whether it's fair-traded coffee, uh, there's a movement to do that in tomatoes, and whether we have better information as consumers, because we're probably the best able to discipline those kind of behaviors, along with government, and simply say, there's a certain, I don't want to buy products that are, whether it's clothing that's in a sweatshop or where they're deploying child labor. So I think we... 
are making improvements in those areas, and we need to keep doing that. One concern I think people have about trade agreements like the USMCA is that the U.S. uses its, its bargaining power to interfere in the domestic public policies of other countries. And there, it, the issue is, if, as long as you like the way in which it interferes in other countries' politics, you know, that's, that's fine. But I don't know that that's necessarily a, a plus overall, right? We've now seen in the, I guess, partial trade agreement with China that, that the U.S. has really forced China to, to centralize a ton of purchases, right? The list of exports that China has committed to includes things like tourism. Right? So, you know, the, so the U.S. is forcing China to force Chinese tourists to travel to the U.S. I don't know that that... <laughs> well, until recently. Well, until, yeah, well, not every, yeah, yeah, sure. But that was your original plan, obviously. As these types of central plans go, a week later they may not be what you want. But so I, I, I would be uh, a, little more, a little more hesitant um, uh, there. But so I wanted to talk to... Uh, well, also the challenge is if we put in... Cert- if we require certain rules for Vietnam clothing manufacturers... We, the risk is then those manufacturers pick up and they move to Bangladesh. And if they're not happy in Bangladesh, then they move to sub-Saharan Africa. So that's one reason I put a little more stock into consumers. And we have to be careful. We're sitting in a very nice room in a, very, in a first world country. And uh, as was demonstrated to me by uh, a professor at, uh, at Chicago, I actually ordered his class when I was there. He said, you know, he made the entire class get up. And he said, I want you to bend over, and it's 100 degrees, and you're going to be in that position in a rice paddy for 10 hours. And the sweatshop is not a great place to work, but we have to get out of our own way and say, right now there are not a lot of alternatives in some of these places. So before we condemn that wholeheartedly, we have to look at alternatives. I don't know what the right answer is. I don't, you know, sweatshops are not the right answer, but having factories then... Corporations pick up and move to a place where they have no labor regulations. That's not an answer either. So, I mean, I think these are, they require government intervention. They require us to exact certain standards. And it requires, I think, consumers to also be aware of it and not just pick the cheapest product. If you don't mind, I've been around these debates a long time. And I often find that people are most enthusiastic about sweatshops who are furthest away from them. But I think the point, analytically, the point that's being made here goes back to what I was saying about the fact that free trade agreements are really economic integration agreements, and there, ha- and there have to be rules associated right. with those. Yeah. Now, a person could say, well, I'm against labor regulation, right? I think, you know, you could take a libertarian position and say, well, we shouldn't have, we shouldn't have minimum wages or, child la- or laws against child labor and this kind of thing. But if you think that we ought to, if you buy into kind of the the sort of post-New Deal consensus around some of these issues in the United States. Understand, when you, if you enter into a free trade agreement with a country that doesn't have those rules, you've just gutted them here. And, right. the, and so it's not a simple, it is not a simple question what the right approach is to economic integration between countries that have a tenfold difference in wages. The idea that you can just walk in and say, well, the minimum wage in, you know, in Chiapas is now the same as it is in Detroit, it, 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 that's not... I don't think anybody's quite saying that. But on the other hand, and I think, Fred, this is one of the, perhaps one of the shortcomings in the timing of your book, is that now I think there's quite pretty convincing evidence that the main impact of NAFTA was not job loss, as you, as you show in your book. It was wage suppression. This is what uh, uh, Otters, David Otter's work, right. I think, who was a basically pro-trade economist, 
That's what that's you know, pretty much definitively shown. The lesson of this experience is the, what the rules are matter. They, they matter. they matter hugely. And there has to, and we know that, by the way, when we look at things like, when we, when we look at things like uh, how, you know, intellectual property is treated, uh, how, uh, uh, you know, whether or not there gets to their, their discriminatory regulatory treatment, that sort of thing. I mean, at one level, everybody understands that when you enter into a free trade agreement, you enter into a common legal and, and economic right. system. Uh, but that, that lesson tends to be forgotten when it comes to, to, to working people, and the consequences of that amnesia um, have been very severe. Right? We would not be having this conversation in this way in this room right? if it had not been that the political foundations of, tr- of trade policy in this country have collapsed, right? and regardless of what the polls show, show. In reality, in terms of who's got power where, the... the, the, the the, tr- the somewhat naive trade policies of the 90s are, have been wiped out politically. I, I, I think, I, I, well, I would, uh, I, would say, I would say David Otter is probably about as anti-trade as it gets conditional on someone being an economist, but otherwise, uh, I think so. <laughs> you, you don't know the, the economists <laughs> I know. <laughs> the, um, Greg, I wanted to ask you, and I, I do think there's definitely uh, do, been Do you know Peter Navarro? The, <laughs> trade economist, uh, whatever he does. The... the um, so there's been a pretty dramatic shift, as, as David said, certainly at the policymaking level in, in, in how people look at trade policy and the policy that's been made. Can you talk a bit about how you've seen that change over the last few years, how suddenly trade policy has become really important in driving financial markets? So I think Fred makes three really important points in the book. Uh, the first is that cheap imports, trade's not just about exports, it's about being able to import things more cheaply or that we couldn't have before, number one. Number two is that bilateral deficits don't matter, an obvious point to most economists, but not obvious to the average person. And number three, that it's not just things you can drop on your foot that matter, it's also services, and you make a good point about that. The United States is a very successful uh, producer and exporter of high-value services like it, such as uh, secondary education. And these are three very important points about trade. They're always important, but they're especially important now because we currently have a president who doesn't actually believe any of those things. And he has tried to drive policy in a direction to reflect his own mistaken beliefs in those things. Now, the interesting thing about Trump is that he's a little bit like Bernie Sanders, which is that he believes certain things, and he has believed those same things for about 40 years. He has always believed. And the thing about Trump is that he's not really a protectionist. He's a mercantilist. What does that mean? It means he's fine with imports as long as we get to export more, is that the point of importing is to allow us only to export. And that if, for some reason, we are exporting less than we import, then we are some level being ripped off. He said that about the Japanese 30 years ago. He says that about the Chinese, about virtually everybody today. Like I said, it's been saying the same for 30 years. It's hard to actually, like, change the message when you've been saying the same thing. So he comes into office, and he tries to basically implement a trade policy that reflects those longstanding beliefs, but he does so against a world that has changed and is not really you know, reflective of those things. So I would describe the first term, uh, the Trump term one policy sort of like looks as follows. Two sets of, uh, two policies for two different parts of the world, a policy for China and a policy for everybody else. Now, with respect to China, he actually is onto something because I think as we all agree is that the, <laughs> it's not just Trump who doesn't believe those three things about your book, Fred. Chinese China doesn't either. <laughs> China does not believe that the point of trade is to get cheap imports. It doesn't. China believes that the point of trade is to be able to sell more Chinese-made stuff to other countries and eventually acquire from other countries the expertise necessary to replace every single imported good. That is basically the path China has now been on for 25 years. China doesn't really care about services. They're quite happy to have Chinese tourists go abroad 
you know, we're now seeing the consequences of that in terms of they spread things like coronavirus. But they've also found that tourism is a very useful weapon for essentially like exerting their influence over whether it's New Zealand or Hong Kong. Hey, New Zealand, hey, South Korea, you do something we don't like, you can say goodbye to the Chinese tourists, okay? So you, um, Trump taking on China on its own terms, as I actually think, is a net positive. And in fact, he's not alone in this. You know, I think people in this room, if it's Derek Scissors here by any chance this morning, but Derek, if you were, he would be fully in agreement that China has been not playing by the rules that we assumed they would when they joined the World Trade Organization. And, and a confrontation was at some point necessary. And I'm not even sure if the, the, it is definitely the case that the trade war with China has cost the United States. But I'm not sure that we know yet whether that's a bad thing. Because if you're going to break some glass because China's misbehaving, some, there has to be costs paid. So that's the China side. The other side is the rest of the world side. Now, the problem here is that the, Trump wanted to take basically his foundational beliefs that are true with respect to China cheating and apply it to every other country, including Canada, Mexico, Japan, and the European Union. And that's just not true. Those countries, by and large, operate more or less like we do. They are market economies, right? And our bilateral deficits with them are not especially notable. And so when he tried to apply that policy, whether it was by, for example, the steel tariffs and the aluminum tariffs mm -hmm. or threatening uh, car tariffs and so forth, threatening to tear up NAFTA and so on, what happened? First of all, he ran into a buzzsaw of opposition from three very important constituencies. Congress, both sides of the aisle, did not want to tear up NAFTA. Governors of border states who did not want the jobs lost that would come from being able to not being able to sell stuff to Mexico or not being able to buy avocados for Super Bowl Sunday. And number three, our allies who are not going to sit there and take it. And so much to the surprise of the Trump administration, they didn't just sit there and take it. Canada retaliated. Mexico retaliated. The European Union retaliated. And that exacerbated the backlash among exporters, whether it's in Kentucky or Minnesota, who were being affected by those tariffs. So at the end of the Trump term, we're at what I kind of call like Ronald Reagan squared. And in the sense that Reagan, we think of him as a free trader, but he was until Trump the most protectionist president we had. And he was protectionist because he was responding to powerful vocal constituencies in the United States. Fred, the reason those Honda Odysseys are made in the United States is because Japan, responding to Reagan's protectionism, right. put assembly right. plants in the United States. That wasn't Ricardian comparative advantage at work. I'm sorry. <laughs> all right? No. That was real politic. Okay? So in some sense, Trump's policies with respect to the non-China part of the world are probably not that different if you had had a kind of like a Reagan-esque type person. But that's term one. I think term two is a very different picture. Assuming Trump is reelected, as the prediction markets say that he will be, I think that term two Trump will look much more like the foundational Trump than we've seen in the sense that I think that the guardrails presented by those counterforces of Congress, governors, and our allies will be much weaker. He doesn't need to get reelected, so he will be much more indifferent to the economic costs of trade war. And I think that the damage uh, or the potential disruption to global trade and the economy <clears throat> in the second term of Trump unbound are concomitantly greater than they have been in the first term. And by the way, I do want to make one point about, yeah. the, Carlin, your interpretation of the polls, because I have a slightly different interpretation about why support for free trade is so high right now. We live in an era that is deeply polarized, mm -hmm. and trade has now become sort of like part of people's cultural identity in the sense that it used to be, Damon, you grew up in a world where most political issues were left versus right. Do we want higher or lower yeah. taxes, bigger government, lower government, more powerful unions or weaker unions? We're now living in a world where it's more sort of globalist versus nationalist, cosmopolitan versus communal, and that is a very powerful part of people's identification. And one of the reasons support for free trade is going up is because there's a lot of people who identify that with their cosmopolitan, globalist, non-Trump identity, and I'm not sure they've actually given a lot of thought no. 
to what it means. Taco trucks at every corner is the... Uh... Yeah, you know, <laughs> that, yeah. Exactly. You know exactly. half the country says, oh my God, taco trucks on the, every corner. And the other yeah. half says, ooh, taco trucks on every, every corner. corner. Exactly. <laughs> and you also have a generational effect here, too. You have the new global generation that's really changing attitude yeah. in a lot of ways in exactly the way you've suggested. Yeah. Someone like, like David Otter or Danny Roderick, who's you know, maybe a little more skeptical of trade than, than, than I would be there, I think their most effective argument is some of these most recent trade agreements, they, they only cut tariffs by a little bit, and so they get you relatively small welfare gains for large disruptions in terms of, sort of absolute changes in where industries are located and things like that. Of course, the moment we revert to slightly higher tariffs, you get all welfare losses, but again, massive disruption, right? And so I think that's important to keep in mind, too, that, the, that, that those large disruptions are, are symmetric. And if we try to decouple, like some of the more aggressive China hawks would like to see, that would lead to the same kinds of disruptions that we saw uh, over the past uh, 20, 30 years. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.